Welcome to another episode of the Relax Just Love podcast, vegan edition. Today, I have the immense pleasure to be speaking with Sean Munson. I don't know that he requires an introduction, but I will still say it. He is an American film director, and I know him, and I think that's how he's the most known is for producing, writing, and directing Earthlings. How are you doing, sir? Good, good. Thanks for having me. I'm happy to be here. I'm very, very happy that Sean introduced us because he was saying that he was having a conversation with you last week for Q&A for the, for the, uh, vegan, the International Mono. Vegan Festival. And yeah, right. so it just turned out I told him that you were the reason I stopped eating meat 12 years ago. It's really, wow. I what, saw Earthlings what? before. It was the only documentary that was out there that was, that was showing the, the actual real brutal side of mm -hmm. what mm -hmm. we do to animals. And I changed that day. I watched it and that was done. That was more than 12 years ago. So what, I'll start what? by saying thank you to you because <laughs> you absolutely changed my life on that one. Well, let me ask you this. What compelled you back then before you were educated? You must have had a sort of a curiosity but I always wonder what makes people press play to watch something before you they know, know like, wh why would they watch that? You know, why would they open themselves up to that? I was, uh, back then my dad uh, got diagnosed with cancer and mm. I was very troubled. I wasn't sure how to take it because he was a super healthy person. And one of my buddies gave me a book on Buddhism and somehow I fell on your documentary. I was, I've been on a spiritual journey for 12, 13, 14 years now. And it just so happened that I fell on your documentary. I was curious because Buddhism is all about vegetarianism and veganism. And I remember being sitting on my couch with my two dogs laying on me. And I'm like, I could never eat them. So why would I eat something else? Right. And somehow I found your documentary. I was open to it and it, just changed me from there yeah yeah well you know it's i'm just a messenger and um i'm not I'm, it's a weird thing to make a to be a documentary filmmaker because you're not really responsible uh maybe depending on the, on, on, the, on what you're covering but you're not really responsible for the content of the message you're just kind of putting together a composition yeah. and you're sharing it you're sort of a messenger and you're saying, Hey, by the way, um, it's almost a form of investigative journalism. You know, you're sort of you're covering an issue and you're bringing it to light and hopefully people see it and go, wait, what? And hopefully it has a positive effect, you know? Well, I know for yeah. sure that how many vegans do I know now that has become vegan because of earthlings? There's mm -hmm. too many to count. So The impact that you've had is absolutely incredible. Um, I've, I haven't watched it since 12 years ago. I've watched it once and I can't really watch those types of videos. I'm too, I'm very sensitive to that thing. It breaks my heart every single time I see animals suffering. Right. The, how, but one thing I was wondering though, because most of the footage is hidden cameras, right? So how did you, were you the one recording? Was it other people giving you their, giving you their footage? How did that work? Well, it was, yeah, there was some of that. I did shoot some of it. A lot of it was, uh, I couldn't get access to those places. So I had to get footage from um, locals or um, former employees investigators, whistleblowers. It really was a, a collage of, of, gathering, of, of gathering data. So, um, sorry about that, another college. But no worries. Um, I, tried to doc, I tried to document as much of it as I could on, on my own. And then at some point I thought, well, wait a second, this is necessary. Like, it doesn't matter if I film this incident, let's say it's involving bullfighting or if somebody ordered it because the animal or animals are really the, are, are the, are the participants who are, who are suffering. And, and, in, and in most cases in the movie, it's capturing this supreme moment, this absolute moment right before death. So I kind of let go a form of authorship to 
the filmmaking process and just began to gather whatever came my way. And I felt then I would sift through it and decide if I thought this was prudent and should be in the film. I remember one time there's a clip in the movie and this footage came to me. It literally came to my house in like a paper bag, like someone I, I put some figures out that I was gathering footage. I couldn't find things and stuff would get some stuff I got permission for. Some was submitted to me sort of cold uh, or blind. Like the people didn't want to say who it came from. And I got this tape and it came from, yeah, the footage was in Turkey, as I understand. And it was when the, it was a scene in the movie where this dog is, is stray dog is thrown into the back of a garbage truck yeah, and then just crushed. And uh, I thought, you know, I, I, it was a mini DV because this is back in the late nineties and early two thousands when I started assembling it. So that was, that was the format wasn't high definition. It was standard definition. And I popped this tape in and I started watching this clip. It's very grainy and there's tracking issues. And this, these guys throw this dog away and crush this animal. And I just thought I wept. I just wept at the editing, my editing bay. And I thought, wow, this literally is life unworthy of life. Like this is literally the throwing away of a life. I mean, literally in the garbage. And uh, I felt like this animal is looking out at all these sort of heartless faces. And there's happens to be a camera there that someone wrote. However many years later, and I found it, it made it into the movie and hopefully has, again, like I say, a positive effect on some viewer that might see it and have a change in that. Tough, tough stuff. It's just a tough subject every time we deal with animals. Uh, we've, we've, uh, listen, humans are hard on each other. Humans are hard on humans, but, uh, but for some reason, if you're an animal born in this world, it, it, you know, look out, uh, you know, if you're lucky to be a celebrity's pet, and this is a conscious celebrity, you might have a very pampered life. It, it, you know, most animals, certainly farm animals or food or just considered food animals. It's very dangerous. And, uh, if you're a pigeon, maybe, you, you know, you're not above predation. So there's very few animals that are above predation and nature's violent. Uh, sometimes even spiritually, I, I question this with the universe. I'm like, okay, let me get this straight. The sort of living by killing mentality. And, uh, and I'm just going to park finally so that I can stop moving my truck. I'm, <laughs> I'm on the road. I'm out of town. So um, you, you caught me on the road, but, even nature, I began to question sort of what, what is this? What is this living by killing? Is this the only way that a spe species or creatures could evolve on a planet is through this living by killing? Um, you know, and, and most people would say, well, yeah, that's, that's, that's how it works. But I'm like, why does it have to work that way? And, and it's talking about Buddhism. It's, it's sort of like, and even Jesus said this, I'm not religious personally, but even I, I love reading about religion and belief systems around the world. And he said, be in the world, but not of the world. And, and, and that was what Christ said. And Buddha said, Buddha, the word Buddha means the one who woke up, who woke up, right? So he began to see this. And even though he recognized, okay, this is the way it is. He still wanted no part of it because he's in the world too. So Buddha, the Buddha is in the world. And the world says, well, we operate this way. This is a living by killing. This is survival of it, et cetera, et cetera. And Buddha says, okay, I, I recognize that. I see that. And like Christ, I'm in the world, but I'm not of the world. I'm here, mm -hmm. but I don't want to play, take part in this. And that's kind of what I guess vegans might do. They're aware of this. They were fed this probably growing up. They were, it's in society. It's in their culture. It's in their religion. It's everything, right? It's identity for people. And then they start to reject it. They're still in the world. But they say no. And look what happens. A movement starts. New food products come about. It's incredible what we can do. We're so powerful. Anyway, you got me off on a tangent there, but uh, <laughs> hopefully that answered your question. Well, that leads me to, because back then in 2005, when you actually made this documentary, well, even you said it probably took you years to put it together. Yeah. Back when yeah. you released it, there was yeah. nothing like it. There was no other right. documentary that was... It was very shocking and thought-provoking. Where mm -hmm. did you get the inspiration to do that? Because you must have been vegan for a long time if you were interested in that. Um, I, I, yeah, I was. I mean, I became vegetarian in the 90s. I was in my 20s, my mid-20s. And I remember... Um, I remember 
going to downtown LA. I was born and raised in Los Angeles. And um, I was going to downtown LA and I was in this sort of a dodgy area, a dodgy part of town. And uh, there were stray dogs everywhere, everywhere, just strays everywhere. And I remember going, my God, like I haven't seen this many strays in, in a major city, at least where I lived in the neighborhoods I was from. I never saw that. We'd see a stray here and there, but not this concentration of strays. And I remember because I was shooting stuff in the 90s, I wanted to be a filmmaker. Back then I was working on film crews and learning, you know, learning how to, learning the ropes, so to speak. And I had a camera and I remember reaching out to the local animal control in LA and just saying, can I come on a ride along? Can I come on a ride along with you? I'm a filmmaker and I want to document what you do. And I did get permission from the city, two cities. I did it in LA and I did it in a city called Long Beach, which is also in LA County, but it's sort of south, sort of southwest. Big, big, LA is a big, huge county. And um, they gave me permission. And I, I think I went to Long Beach first, as memory serves. And, 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 the, and the animal control officer called an ACO, animal control officer ACO, was a woman. She's in the film. She's picking up some of the roadkill. And there's a couple of clips. And I, I brought two cameras. I brought an eight millimeter film camera. So I had kind of that film look. And then I brought a video camera because the video was still pretty crude. It wasn't high definition video. So I had two and I kind of was selective. I had a budget. I didn't have a lot of money. And I was mixing up the format. And she, they'd go out and pick up strays. They'd go out and just pick up strays all day on their shift. One house, I'll never forget, this was in Long Beach. It's not in the movie. I didn't end up using it, but um, we went to this house and this is in Long Beach. And the woman said, um, well, we have a, a complaint of a barking dog. We have a complaint of a, of a barking dog. It just won't stop barking. So we have to go there. And I said, okay, can you give me the backstory? And she says, yeah. So what happened is, is this complaint came in and usually... We don't know how long the dog's been barking before someone actually picks up the phone and finally calls. And then we have other issues. So we don't get over there. So we got over there on a Friday afternoon. Dog may have been barking since Wednesday or Thursday, but we got there on Friday. Knock on the door. No one's there. No one answers. So we have the right. This is animal control to post. It's called a pre-seizure notice. We post a notice on the door, pre-seizure notice that within 24 hours, we can come back and if, the problem has to stop. We can let ourselves in and see what's the matter with the dog. This is animal control. Pre-seizure notice doesn't include the weekend. 24 hours doesn't include the weekend. So it's a, it's a Friday. It's post on a Friday. So that means they're not going to go till Monday. This is in July. In the summer, it's very hot. They didn't make it Monday. They didn't make it Tuesday. And I'm on the ride along on a Wednesday. So she says, oh, we got to go to this house. There was this notice of a barking dog. Let's finally get over there and see. So we get there on the Wednesday. And sure enough, upstairs, there's a dog with this very raspy bark that's still barking. And so she knocks on the door, nothing. Her notice is still there. She calls the cops. Cops will break them in. They can go in. Animal control gets the dog. We go around to the back. There's a sliding glass door. We look through the window. I'm there with animal control. I'm filming this. Police show up. She says, oh, this is a filmmaker. They say, okay, stay behind us. They break the glass. We go in. There's no furniture. The house is empty. So um, chief, the animal, the ACO, the animal control officer says, I think it's a pit bull. She says, I think it sounds like a pit bull up there. And the cops are like, all right, are we going to get bit? Is this going to be an aggressive animal? She goes up the stairs first. The cops, two policemen behind her and then me fourth with my camera house is empty which means this animal's been abandoned in this house either the people who live there moved out and left the dog or it could be drug related some kids just or somebody broke in and stuck got rid of this am she opens this door and out comes the sweetest most gentle loving pit bull because these dogs get a bad rap they can be aggressive but they all they're very strong they're strong but they get a terrible rap they're very loving and out comes this sweet sweet mother she's skin and bones and two puppies, two little puppies. And they're just, so, and we go in this room and I have a little bit of this footage and um, there's nothing in the room, there's no water. So it's very hot upstairs, it was summer. And there's a fire hydrant. And I remember I think, I'm sorry, there's a fire extinguisher, which I thought was quite odd that in the middle of this room, which is totally empty, no one lives in this house. There's just this fire extinguisher, just someone left the fire extinguisher sitting there. And then there's this mother and two pups. And my guess is she nursed these puppies until she ran out of milk. She nursed them as long as she could. And then her milk was dry and she was calling and barking for help. And she barked for probably close to a week. 
Thursday, Friday, Saturday, Sunday, Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday. And here's, here's, the, here's the sadness of it. We take her to the shelter. We, put, we take her to the vet, actually. I have footage of this still. One day I'll have to go through some of these old footage and maybe release this as a supplement of some kind and, and tell this story. We take him to the vet. Mother goes in one kennel, the two pups another. They haven't had any solid foods, but we put food and water and they practically eat the bowl. They're just famished, right? They're absolutely famished and dehydrated. And, um, and then what happened legally in that city at that time, this is over 20 years ago. This is in the 90s when this was filmed. This was, in the, this was one of the very beginnings of working on Earthlings. It was late 90s, probably in 99, I'm guessing. And uh, they held the animals for 30 days because they are considered property. They're someone's pets because they were at an address. And if no one claims them because they were pit bulls, the city of Long Beach at the time wouldn't adopt pit bulls. So we nursed them back to health for 30 days. And then all three were euthanized, the mother and her two puppies. And I came away from this and I thought, this is a complete injustice to these animals. Now, I'm not comparing humans to animals, but I will compare the mentality of a taskmaster, whether it's to abusing humans or abusing nature or abusing animals. We'll compare the mentality of the, of the taskmaster, of the villain, of the Nazi, if you would, um, this mentality. And here's where we see a correlation. Um, I thought someone needs to tell this story because it, animals are not considered persons. They don't have personhood. You know, they don't legally have personhood. A mosque has personhood. A temple could have personhood. A corporation might have personhood. But look, 100 years ago, African-Americans were fighting for personhood. Women in the turn of the 20th century were fighting for the right to vote, a, a degree of personhood, civil rights, equal rights. Uh, you know, the LGBT community has been, plus community has been saying we're individuals, we're persons. We have the right to be treated the same. And it's taken humanity a long time to warm up to this idea because we're so different. And we've always been different. We've always been this sort of variety. Humanity has always been sort of multitudinous. In fact, nature's been multitudinous. There's like 250 different kinds of chickens out there. You know, it's just, it's just multitudinous. But for some reason, we're like picky. Well, we like the white ones. Or we like this rich, the rich ones. Or we like the Christian ones. Or we like sort of we group this, this multitudinous rainbow of life into, into partitions and silos. And those are the ones we like and love and cultivate love. And these are the ones we hate and don't really care about so much. So it's taken us a long time to accept these different groups and individuals. The animals don't yet have personhood. So they still don't. To, to, as this is a conversation Saturday night, they still don't have personhood. So, and I remember thinking someone should do something. Someone should tell the story of the animals. Someone really should, even though this was about uh, a dog in a house and her two pups. And I remember laying in bed, just sort of thinking, someone should tie all this together, food and clothing and entertainment, and medical research and, and the pet industry, you know? And then it hit me like, oh, I, I, I think this is me. I think I need to put this together. And that was the, the genesis of, of Earthlings. That's a long answer to your question, but that's how it started. But that was such a powerful answer though. The I, I had to refrain myself from crying because this, if there's one thing I love is dogs and I'm a big fan of pit bulls on top of it. It's yeah. just, I don't, I, I'll never understand how people can treat another living being that way. I don't understand it. It makes no sense to me. I don't, I'll, I'll never get it. I'll never understand. It's, it blows my mind to know that we're that brutal with each other, but uh, we're mm -hmm. brutal with voiceless animals. Mm -hmm. It's absolutely uh -huh. brutal. The yeah. I, I want to, I want to because um, one of the questions I've been asking myself a lot recently is, what's the best way to influence people that are not vegans, that are not plant based, that are not even vegetarian? And I always come up with the answer that self we're selfish human beings. We're very selfish, and we will normally we'll only change when it's better for us when it brings us something which is why from experience and i've spoken to hundreds and hundreds of vegans over the past few weeks and most of them have become vegan through being plant-based for a health reason and then they started mm -hmm. to learn about once they were plant-based they started meeting other vegans and they're like 
oh shit, this is what's actually going on in the meat industry and in the dairy industry. And then they become vegan for the animals, which let me say this that way. I don't care how you become vegan. As long as you become vegan, I'm more than happy. But in your opinion, because you were talking before we started recording that documentaries don't have necessarily the impact or the reach that you hoped they did. So right. how do you suggest, right. Right. what do you believe is the best way to reach people and influence them? Right. Yeah. Well, I think, you know, we all, we, all, we all do our part. You know, I happen to be interested in media and film. And, and so for my part, I'll focus on, on that area. Um, there are those who work on, you know, who write books and do music and, and or, or food tech, food technology, which we've seen, which is incredible. The modern food innovations that we're seeing. Thank, thank God for these guys that are, you know, um, saying, hey, try this. It's just like a burger. And, you know, yeah. and you know, again, the best diet in the world is a whole food plant-based diet, you know, obviously, but if these are stepping stones for people, because we're so, listen, we, we started talking about the Buddha. The Buddha also said that the greatest miracle in the world is to change a single thought. That's uh -huh. quite a statement. It's yeah. quite a statement. The greatest, wait a minute, hold on. The greatest miracle in the world is to change a single thought thought that's kind of terrifying how do we expect to change change thought whatever your social justice movement is whether it's political or religious or spiritual or environmental or whatever then be elevated in this world if the greatest miracle in the world is to change a single thought whoa okay we have a, a road ahead of us i come from making documentaries i've done them for over 20 years uh i love the power of documentary i love the power of the non-fiction film sometimes it's conflicting for me I'm working on something and it's so graphic i have to take it out which is weird for the non-fiction genre because you're taking truth out that's a very strange thing to be editing it's in the post-production when you're editing and you're removing truth uh it's not to be manipulative it's because it's too strong and the audience will simply turn off so you end up toning down essentially the truth of something that's horrible so that the audience will watch it. So that's a weird feeling that I have. Uh, it's a crossroads, a threshold that you have to cross as a filmmaker. But I read statistics that there's 10 movie genres, essentially 10 genres. Um, and the top three are, are adventure films, action films, and dramas. Number nine out of 10 is documentaries, which means we're losing like 90% of our audience before we, just because we're make, focusing on, on that genre. And I recognized this over the years and after Unity, which has now been 2015, I started saying, okay, uh, I don't, and Earthlings especially, I don't want to cajole people into watching a movie. I don't want to say, come on, you got to see this like nag on people or kind of drag them kicking streaming to watch something. I'd much rather create a situation where they're so eager to see something. And um, as we spoke before, you know, there's a lot of content out there that's high quality, premium content being released every week. And people can't watch TV 24 hours a day. They got lives. They got, they got a million things going on. They come home in the evening and they watch a little bit. And the last thing they may want to watch is a confronting piece that's going to challenge how they live, how they were brought up, what their mother and grandmother and great-grandmother fed them. We're, we may be, and this is just me as a filmmaker, I'm not saying I'm right, but this is just the viewpoint I'm sharing. We may be doing the animals a disservice if we're only, if me as filmmakers are only focusing on documentary film in this genre. We may not be reaching the audience. So in the last five years I've spent, which is why I have made a film for, for going on six years and I'm just starting one now. I've done a lot of other stuff in between, but um, I deliberately focused on those top three categories to reach people. So it's kind of like a Trojan horse, you know, you just say, okay, if this is what makes, gets you interested, uh, let's not reinvent the wheel. Let's do, let's do this. And then, um, you know, maybe more, more viewers will come. I had a meeting with James Cameron. I told this story before the great director, James Cameron from Avatar and Terminator. And, and he and I ran into each other at a, at, at a restaurant in Los Angeles um, called Crossroads, which is this awesome vegan restaurant in LA. If you're ever visiting LA, I, I recommend it. It's, it's, it's very good. And we were there for the launch of the Impossible Burger when it was being tested and coming out. So it was a few years ago. And, it, and uh, there was Jim Cameron and, and uh, we got chatting and he'd seen Earthlings and, and we talked for about 20 minutes and he gave me some amazing advice. And this is one of the biggest filmmakers in Hollywood. 
Yeah. Truly, he, he, he's been making movies for about 30 years. He's an environmentalist. He's a vegetarian or a vegan. And uh, he, cares about, he cares about this stuff. And he's only made six or seven movies in 30 years. He hasn't really yeah. been cranking out movies, but almost every one was a blockbuster. I mean, he's like the Beatles. He's like the Paul McCartney of, of movie directors. I mean, other directors can't even say that, where every single film yeah. was a blockbuster. So here he is. We're, we're chatting, and he kind of puts his arm around me to give me some advice. I'm thinking, wow, I'm going to hear like this. I'm going to hear like the secrets of, <laughs> of the industry, what to do. And he tells me, and I already kind of had this seed planted. He says, make a movie first and foremost that people want to see. Number one, number two, put your message in it. Yeah. And then he paid me a very high compliment. Very high compliment. He says, Earthlings has one of the best messages I've ever seen in a movie. He goes, but nobody wants to see it. And he's right. You know, you don't really want to see it. You yourself said you'd seen it once 12 years ago. It's not something you want to revisit. Like, um, you know, you might rewatch, I don't know, Raiders of the Lost Ark or Jaws or some other movie. Who knows what you're into? You might watch it again and again. You might enjoy it. And I want to make films that people want to see more than once. Docs are a one and done. If we're going to spend the time, the money, the resources, the effort, the energy, or get the talent. Sometimes I work with some pretty cool talent. Let's do something that isn't a one and done. Let's see if they come back and watch it again or future generations can watch it again. And that's what I've been working on for the past five years is fully forming this approach. And I've got five projects now that are in this theme and um, we're starting one here in the new year and we're, we're, um, we're developing it and going into pre-production. We're already half funded. So we're, we're, we're halfway there. And my hope is that a broader audience will immediately come to see it out of interest. And then in the third act, it hits them like a doc. It hits them just like a doc does, but not until, not until they're invested. And we'll see if that has a, a positive effect. So maybe a vegan superhero? <laughs> <laughs> I haven't got a vegan superhero, but um, uh, I haven't got a vegan, a vegan superhero. We're doing a comedy, actually. We're doing a comedy coming up, which is great because I read, um, I always wished I was funnier. I just wish I was funnier because I read uh, psychologically that when you laugh, it returns the brain for a few moments to a five-year-old child. Yep. And when you're five years old, you're very teachable. You're very teachable. And I thought, oh, now how do you tackle something so horrific as how we treat the animals with humor, which you really, I don't think you can do. Um, but I found another way. I found another way to do it. And, uh, and you laugh and, and the seed is still planted. I always say that all of us as activists, whether you're a filmmaker or a writer, or, uh, you're on the street with a sign or you're a chef and you're making food, whatever. I always say that we're gardeners, really, and we're casting seeds, hopefully every day. And sometimes those seeds are cast on, on rich, fertile soil, and sometimes it's just stony ground and it doesn't, doesn't take root. But we can't stop casting seeds, number one. Number two, we can't get burnout because we're in the minority. We're a very and the animals have no voice. The animals, unlike all the humans I listed earlier who've come up in social justice movements, the animals still don't have personhood and therefore they cannot sue for damages like every other group can. Every other group can sue for damages. The two groups who can't yet sue for damages are the trees, Mother Nature, and the animals. And both of those groups have had such intense damages wrought upon them that if they, could, if they had personhood, if they could sue us for damages, can you imagine? Can you imagine? But that's sort of supremism, the, the human supremism that we've wrestled with. You know, it goes all the way back to Galileo. We thought we were the center of the universe. We had to be the center, right? I mean, here's this vast, prodigious environment called the cosmos, and we have to be at the center, right? Of course, <laughs> I mean, obviously. And when, and when he, obviously, we have to be. It's very supremism. And then, of course, he spots Jupiter, and it has moons. And it's the first time he ever witnessed another center. Something else had a center. And there he goes to tell the priests about it. And if you read the story of the history of Galileo, it's interesting. The priests would not look through the telescope. No, no. They didn't, they didn't want to see it. They didn't want to confront that truth. It's very interesting because 500 years later, however long it's been, there are similar things that we don't want to look at. So uh, let's not make it, let's not, you know, we're not doing ourselves 
fares if we just keep making it too graphic and too hard. So we have to find other ways. I think the food tech companies, the modern food companies have been brilliant in saying, look, you're determined to eat a burger and you'll never eat anything but a burger. You should really eat a salad and a smoothie and have some health food in you, some whole food, plant-based food. But if you won't do that, if that's too much of a, of a leap for you to take, try this burger. That's something that Beyond has done very well. Beyond is, you know, Ethan Brown, the CEO of Beyond, who I know who's a great guy, has said, I wanted, I know that when people smell raw meat out of plastic, they're actually put off by it. But when they smell it cooking on a barbecue, something lights up in them. He goes, why can't I do that with plants? Can I find a way to formulate plants in such a way that when they cook, you have the same reaction? And he's done it. He's done it with Beyond. The team has done it. So that you taste it and you have that same reaction. Now, maybe that's a dopamine hit. I don't know. I can't speak to that. I don't know what it is. And, and, it's, and, and really, you should be eating asparagus and broccoli and sprouts and beets and all <laughs> kinds of other healthy things. Uh, not cooked. You know, you should eat them raw. But he's already, if the greatest miracle in the world is to change a single thought, he is helping to change that thought by saying, okay, you want a burger? You want anything but a burger? Will you try this burger? And even then people were like, I don't know. I, I don't know. We had to do like these taste tests. Burger King was like trying to fool people to compare. And we're so stubborn. I mean, humans are so stubborn. God bless us because we're so inventive and poetic and beautiful too. I mean, we're extraordinary. We're romantic. We're artistic. And in the same breath, we're diabolical. You know, we're absolutely horrifically diabolical to each other, to the environment, and to the animals. So we're quite, uh, it's quite a panorama. I mean, look, Hitler and Gandhi were contemporaries. If that isn't a microcosm for, right there for you to see the, the range of yeah. human consciousness, I don't know what else is. And Gandhi wrote letters to Hitler, you know, tried to petition him as someone who'd had some success, Gandhi, with having a positive influence in his country, in these peaceful Anyway, you got me on these philosophical thoughts. I hope it's interesting to your listeners. So uh, anyway. I'm all about philosophy. Yeah. I've often wondered, I've often reflected on the fact that human, humans as a whole were kind of a virus to our planet and Possibly. how well the planet would survive and thrive if you just remove the human component to it. The planet would go back to what it was 500,000 years ago, it'd be beautiful and it would thrive without us. Yeah. But here's the thing. There must be a reason why we're here. Either we can mm -hmm. say that the universe made a mistake, evolution made a mistake, God, if you, if you like. Um, or or uh, we too are part of nature because we're here. Just like I said earlier, how the Buddha's here and he's part of the world or Christ is here and saying in the world, not of the world. And this is the ultimate obstacle course for maximum spiritual growth, if you will, um, karmic growth, if you will. It certainly can't just be physical growth. It can't just be physical because it's such a transitory, it's such a transitory experience here. You know, you wake up, you go to sleep, you wake up, you go to sleep, you wake up, you go to sleep. So, and then you look in the mirror and you see yourself and you're aging and you're saying, well, what's happening? And what part of you, sees part of you aging except some sort of ageless part of you that's noticing this transition happening we dream the worlds are very realistic we wake up it's over uh does that happen when we die that you know is, that, is it nothing but oblivion when we die or do we wake up and realize this is a sort of transitory experience and what do we learn from it um you know what do we learn from it did we get swept away in the you know the politics of the time, wherever we live we're to survive Okay, it's hard to fault anybody for just being human and just trying to survive in this world. And we're easily influenced. We're very easily influenced. We can't tell the difference between essence and appearance. We can't tell the difference between essence and appearance. So we see something that looks good. I mean, a lot of people in Germany voted for Hitler. And we've, and we've seen other countries where their leaders, people thought, okay, hey, we see some of it here. We're not quite sure who, who, who to believe. We have a hard time for whatever reason deciphering appearance from essence that's why we get ripped off on the you know with a car dealer or dealership or we get you know, ripped off by an accountant we friend or a heartbroken by a lover appearance versus essence we tell the difference for some reason um here to debate that maybe we're here to learn appearance versus essence um i don't know i, I don't know but um i know this is 
I know this is a brief situation for all of us. And we all know that we wouldn't try to capture all these moments all the time. We take a million photos all the time. We're constantly taking pictures trying to capture something. We want to leave behind a legacy. We want our name to be remembered. You know, um, uh, we sense something, you know, very mortal about ourselves and we want to be immortal. And if that's really the case, well, well, 95% of the planet has a religious belief um, and all combined belief system. So we clearly, the majority has an interest in something about the great beyond and we want to know more. And there again, appearance versus essence, we, we are deceived sometimes. So it seems to be this obstacle course, this life to learn. And perhaps it's, perhaps with all the negativity, it's an ideal obstacle course for maximum karmic growth to become a uh, higher consciousness. Um, I'm not sure. Um, I'm interested though. In that and i'm happy to talk about that and learn from each other about that because it can't just be about your job no. and surviving and what you eat and i mean that's what worms like cockroaches do that they try they build societies they try to survive they eat they die i mean we, we, we can't just be we can't just be like every other you know organism that's just trying to survive there must be something more yeah you know a lot of um a lot of I'm a very spiritual person and I believe that veganism is just a step in my spiritual journey just ah. to become the most compassionate and kind person that I can become but I agree with you 100% that this is a temporary state our physical state is very temporary whatever you want to call it mm -hmm. the essence your soul your spirit however you mm -hmm. choose mm -hmm. the name that you want to put on it we are mm -hmm. here to learn our spirit or has a physical yeah. form to go through pain, to go right. through adversity, to learn. And mm. as you said it, it's, you know, it, I think it's a game. When you look at it, it's a game. And the whole point is to learn knowing that it is a game. Because mm -hmm. mm. if this whole experience is temporary, we're all going to die one day. What's the point yeah. of being here except learning? Yeah take something with you and maybe we uh, uh the things you take with you aren't material things obviously and memories and experiences okay sure but there seems to be something else that we're here to assimilate you know i i don't like and maybe we can close on this one nicholas but i i you know i don't like animal testing obviously any type of abuse of animals but there was one study when i was working on earthlings that i read um it was an animal test because I was researching this stuff and it really threw me. It was interesting, but maybe it ties into this. They took um, caterpillars in a uh, confined space and they would um, uh, spray uh, a perfume, which was immediately followed by a shock, an electric shock. And it didn't take long for these little beings to recognize that the scent preceded pain preceded pain so as soon as the, 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 the scent of the perfume came in they panicked right away okay then they stopped uh the the the, the sectors the people who were testing on these animals the researchers stopped the caterpillars went into the cocoons they went to their cocoons for however many weeks that process takes and they emerged butterflies now inside the cocoon if my research is correct, the, the being almost liquefies inside. It's a complete metamorphosis inside from this caterpillar and it comes out this, this butterfly. And when the butterflies came out of their cocoons, they sprayed the perfume once and all the butterflies panicked. Now, here's a question though, spiritually. On what level did they assimilate that experience? Because if they turn it, if it's liquefied inside, it means it's in their DNA. Is it something spiritual? If all beings have a spirit, something registered through the experience of the previous incarnation and carried over into the next incarnation. So they remembered something. Um, maybe that's what happens to us if we choose to learn. Otherwise, I don't know. I don't, again, the Hindu belief or the belief in reincarnation, maybe we've got to come back over and over and over again until we start to assimilate. Hang on a second. This whole life can't just be a sort of grab fest where I just take from myself. There's got to be something deeper. 
in this. It has to be something deeper. And the animals might be the best ambassadors in the world sort of teaching us, um, you know, no, as we said in unity, no separation based on form, no separation based on form because there's all these different forms in this world. Like I said, multitudinous forms are in this world. So to have love and compassion for some forms and then this attitude of aggression toward other forms is a duality. There are mm -hmm. stories of Nazi soldiers who would, who would, uh, there's one story I read too when I was working on Unity of this gas soldier who would send people to the ovens, you know, into the gas chambers. And there was one little child, little girl who was 10 and her family had been killed in, in the camps. And she was just a, not only physically exhausted, but psychologically wasted from what this experience this child was passing through. And because she was stammering, going too slow on the way to her death. Uh, he rifle butted her in the back of the head, so she moved quicker, move move along. But this Nazi, this Nazi had two twin ten year old daughters at home, and was known his whole life to be very loving, very loving and compassionate. That's a separation. It's not a separation based on form. But it's a duality in the mind that I cultivate love for these expressions of life, my kids, but I I'm violent toward another expression of life. That must be transcended. And it happens in all of us in various microcosmic ways, not as extreme as that, but in little decisions we make throughout the day. You know, dogs, cats, no compassionate, cows, chickens, pigs, that's okay. That's okay. That's yeah. right. How, how dare you hurt a golden retriever? I mean, how dare you hurt a golden retriever? You know, but the chicken, yeah, you know, that's okay. As long as that mentality exists, there will be racism, sexism, speciesism, there will be wars in this world because there's a duality, it's split, and life is multitudinous. And this is a simple, this isn't a concept. These aren't, these aren't concepts I'm talking about. These are simple facts. Mm -hmm. But we've been taught, we've been taught to group. We've been taught, we're tribal still, we're very tribal. So we're group-minded, and that's where the separation that's where the separation occurs. So anyway, uh, anyway, I, I hope this is interesting to somebody and I appreciate you having me <laughs> on and taking the time. And I hope I didn't bore your audience to tears today. You know, I'm sure they will absolutely love it. The, um, I, th these are my type of conversation. I love philosophical conversations. So I'm Me at too. least if nobody else is happy, I'm very happy. So um, <laughs> well, we had a good conversation. You and me. Let me ask you something I'll though. I got to ask you one thing before you leave. Uh, Okay. I always ask the same question and let me know what you think. But if you were capable of speaking to your 14 year old self, what would you tell him? If I could talk to my 14 year old self, I was not raised as a, a vegan. Um, I was sensitive to animals as a kid, but it was pets. And if I could talk to my 14 year old self, I would tell him to look at the plate, look at the plate the same way as our dog. We had a little dog named Dandy. And um, I too was brought up with, you know, this was the pet and everything else was totally detached and was completely made for humans. I, you know, like all of us, we wish we were vegan sooner, right? Once we wake up, we all wish we could go back and why didn't I sooner? It's, it's, that's a universal feeling that seems to be expressed when you wake up to this. Uh, I am a father. I have two daughters and um, um, I've raised both of them vegan. Um, my youngest is only three, but my oldest is 20 because there's a big gap in between them. <laughs> and my oldest, my oldest is, uh, is Mira. She's in college and she's born and raised vegan. And I remember taking her and she's vegan to this day. She's her own person. She lives on her own and she makes her own choices. Uh, so I was grateful that that stuck when she began to think and make her own decisions, you know, that that influence had it stuck, but, um, when we went to that to sample the first time we sampled the Beyond Burger, which was at a house somewhere, we sampled one of the small gathering. My daughter was probably I don't know fourteen or something, and I or thirteen or fourteen. I remember fifteen. She said she'd never tasted meat her whole life, and so she tastes this, and, and we're freaking out. We're thinking someone has brought cameras in and has punked a bunch of vegans, and they're making us taste because we thought we this was unmistakable for those of us who remember. And I remember, I'll never forget, she took a bite and she's like, I don't know, is this, is this what meat tastes like? Because she'd never tasted it her whole life. She'd never had anything. So she had no point of reference for the animal. 
So she's had this pure vessel and so does my youngest. And I wish I was raised that way, but my parents, you know, they didn't, they didn't know as a lot of people didn't know. And so our job is to try to help more people know, realize what they probably suspect deep down already. Cause everybody knows what goes on in the slaughterhouse, but it tells you right there in the name, you know, and people don't want to see it. Um, I'm sure that in time, in the decades to follow, people will look back and they, you know, in the future as they're evolved, they'll wonder, oh, you guys used to like slaughter animals and you'd actually inject them with hormones to fatten them up to be a certain modified, a certain way. And you used to test on them with whatever your problems were, whatever your illnesses or ailments were, you subjected them to that to see, I mean, history, uh, I'm sorry, the future might be merciless, just like, Today, we don't appreciate the culture of slavery that was all over the world for a long time. You know, leaders of countries, leaders of various religious groups and people all over, many people had slaves, had slaves. And, and you look back and there's no one that really appreciates the culture of slavery. It's just, it's, it. The only thing you can call it is a lower level of consciousness that was going on sort of universally, except for the few, the small percentage, the abolitionists who would recognize this and were saying, wait a second, hang on a second. You're not supposed to do this. How dare you do this? And there was that. And it began from a minority to a majority. And the same may happen with how we treat the animals. The same may happen with how we treat the earth as we look at climate change and, and, you know, great activists like this young Greta Thunberg, who's out there speaking out and happened to have sort of caught on globally and people are listening to this child in Sweden and she's sort of unfiltered, you know, and, um, and they keep spinning and saying, we had these goals and we had these efforts that people will in the future will look back again, a hundred years from now, a hundred years, not that far. And they will wonder, what were you thinking? They won't appreciate that culture either of, uh, of what we might call the burning culture, the burning machine, which was, dig in the ground, fossil fuels, light a match to it and release it into the atmosphere as fast as you can as a power source, which we've been doing for a good 200 years, let's say since the industrial revolution began. The burning machine, the burning machine, which we have running and we have a killing machine running. We have a burning machine and a killing machine, two machines running 24 seven and they're having a detrimental impact on the earth and on humanity. And some a small minority of voices are speaking up saying, hang on a second, we need to change this burning machine and this killing machine mentality. And people are like, are you crazy? This is how we've been doing things. What are you talking about? This is madness. Look, I have a truck. We're sitting in a truck because I have a sanctuary and we, have, and we tow animals and we rescue animals. Uh, I should say we tow animals, but we have a horse trailer that we've rescued animals from. So I have to have a truck so I can do this. I was one of the first ones who ordered the electric truck that comes out next year so I can, I can transition. This truck I'm sitting in has 2,000 moving parts in it. Uh, I will be lucky if I, if I drive this thing as gently as I can to get 300,000 miles out of it, if I'm lucky. If I'm lucky to get over it. Uh, Tesla Model S has 18 moving parts in it. This has 2,000. Tesla Model S, for example, has 18. Its powertrain, which is its engine, will go 500,000 miles, and it will hit a million. It's better technology. It's evolved. Uh, I wish we had it 100 years ago. 100 years ago, when they were a little over 100 years ago, when they were inventing the automobile, J.D. Power and Associates was saying, do we do electric? Because they had the electric car in San Francisco going up and down in the early 1900s. Or do we go combustion? Electric combustion, electric combustion. They chose combustion. So for 100 years, they've cultivated and improved and perfected the combustion engine, which is a burning machine. And now these guys come along with 18 moving parts with magnets and say, we'll do something else. Um, Martin Luther King was right. We quote him in unity. The arc of human history is long, but it bends toward justice. We don't appreciate the culture of slavery. We're looking at the burning and the killing machine. And we're saying, I don't know if this works anymore, but that arc is long, which means it's a little slow. The question is, will we make it on time? Will we make it? Will we make the changes necessary on time before we either destroy ourselves or destroy our planet? Because it's spectacular that we destroy our planet. It's absolutely, 
I can't understand the logic of destroying our planet. It's like we're in a lifeboat. We're kind of punching holes in it because uh, we can't we can't get to another lifeboat. You know, we don't have another one. The next closest uh, sun, you know, there's four four billion suns in this galaxy, right? And the next, so this is let's say our sun is star number one. So there's four billion stars out there. Well, the next closest one is Alpha Centauri, which is which is light years and light years away. We don't know if it has any habitable planets around us. And the fact that we have no other planet B, as they say, and we just sort of destroy this one is, it's, 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 it's I can't find the words. It's so <laughs> illogical because the primary focus, at least in the United States, is economic growth. That's the only growth. Economic growth. That's paramount. You know, other forms of growth, cultivating education or uh, even interstellar travel or uh, intergalactic travel, which is way too advanced, or cultivating the planet we have and eliminating the burning and the killing machine. That type of growth we can't do because it affects economic growth. And that's the only growth that matters. And this is a, a great error that future generations will not appreciate, just like we don't appreciate the culture of slavery. The culture of economic growth only as being paramount will not be appreciated by future generations. We have a few voices right now trying to call that out, but they're not, they're not popular enough yet. They're still a minority. Anyway, I, I hope I haven't droned on too much and bored your audience <laughs> to tears, but thanks for listening. Thanks for listening. I really, really appreciate you taking the time. It's uh, not the conversation we thought I thought we would have, but I'm so happy we did. It's oh, good. That's, that's good. the beautiful thing of podcasting. You never know where it's going. Good, 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 good. Well, thank you uh, very much. And thanks for all you're doing and all the messages are getting out there, man. We, we, we need more voices like yours, that's for sure. Thank you for doing Earthlings. As I said before, you changed my life and countless others. I'm looking forward to see where you're going from now. Thank you. Thank you, Nicholas. I appreciate it. Thank you. And, all right. uh, Be well. Take yeah, care. Enjoy the rest of your day. Okay, thanks, man. Take care. Bye-bye now. See you later.